Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, the third of our four episodes on Errol Morris's first person. We are joined once again, we, the royal we, I, Chris Funderburg, am joined once again by Martin Kessler to discuss the films of Errol Morris. How are you doing, Martin? Good. I'm glad to be back. Ready for round three. Yeah. And our first two episodes, as a reminder, we talked about uh, was episode one was The Best and the Brightest, which is Errol Morris's films about human intelligence and ha- the function of the human mind. The second episode was Crime Adjacent Stories, which were a series of sort of true crime-ish episodes taken from his documentary series, but not about criminals, about people near crime, sort of around the world of crime. This episode we're calling Likely Heroes. And this is this is an interesting episode because it's about it's four films. Mr. Debt about a um, debt and credit card debt lawyer, Andrew uh, Capoccia, The Little Gray Man, which is about a CIA agent named Antonio Mendes, a.k.a. the Argo guy. You ben Affleck. Uh, yes, Ben Affleck. Very similar to Ben Affleck in Man <laughs> And, and attitude. You're soaking in it, which is about a woman who runs a crime, crime scene cleanup business named Joan Doherty in Leaving the Earth, which is a film about the um, airline pilot, he, uh, Denny Fitch. He's actually trains pilots for emergency situations and finds himself on an emergency flight, a very dire flight uh, as a passenger. Um, this, I think the first question is, the Denny Fitch episode is unquestionably heroic, which is in a massive rarity in Errol Morris's filmography. I think he also a little bit sees Temple Grandin in heroic terms, who we discussed in the first episode, Stairway to Heaven. Um, I think there's a little bit more uh, gray area with these other ones as to whether they're heroes or not. Absolutely. What, what do you think about that? This, If the last episode asked, what is a criminal, right? The films asked, what is a criminal? These films, I think a little bit ask the question, what is a hero, right? Do you agree with that? I think so. And I mean, the question does come up uh, specifically in, in some of these, like there's a portion of The Little Gray Man where Errol Morris is like, well, you know, the kinds of heroes that don't need to be identified as heroes. And I think that's kind of what he's looking for is maybe a broader definition of what a hero could be. You know, maybe the people who are not necessarily obvious heroes. I think that's kind of what he's looking for. Um, Like you said, Danny, Danny Fitch is very unambiguously heroic. He's viewed that way, he's seen that way, and that's sort of a baseline to maybe examine some of these other people who are possibly heroic in other ways or in less obvious ways. So I, I think that's kind of an interesting way of digging into the other three documentaries. Um, yeah, there's are, kind of a, a scale here uh, of Yeah, of we t- talked a little bit about like, you know, the the inverse of the zone six of evil, um, if there's like <laughs> zones of heroism or zones of good. <laughs> the the recalcitrant, untreatable heroes like Denny Fitch that just have heroism in their blood no matter what they do. The zone six of heroism. Um, uh, that I think is also, but I do think that's part of the, the, the point too with these films. Uh, maybe not the point, Denny Fitch 
um, and Joan Dougherty, who has the crime scene cleanup business, I think it's fair to call them unremarkable human beings in the sense of they're like average people. They're not the smartest man and woman in the world. They didn't score high on IQ tests. They're not uh, Harvard trained, right? But they're incredibly remarkable people at the same time, as far as what they accomplish and what they do. It's, it's sort of, there's a bit of a division between thought, between theoretical value of a person and actual value, like the divide between thought and action, which runs yes. through the other works as well as, is, you know, is a psychopath somebody who does psychopathic behaviors? Well, you have Mr. Personality tell us they're very good at disguising psychopathic behaviors. So you never even know they're psychopaths, right? That kind of thing. Uh, and it's, you know, if a psychopath who only does good things his entire life is actually a psychopath, you know, like, well, that ends up being a circular sort of useless definition of it. Not somewhere. a psychopath. That's exactly yeah. the sort of thing a psychopath would say. Well, exactly. But also <laughs> yeah. like the Christian Langan and Rick Rosner, who are objectively two of the smartest men in the world, and they only do dumb things, right? Yes. That they only do idiotic things, that sort of their life is a trail of like stupidities, you know? And uh, I think that that's, you know, these are the inverse of that. If you have very average people doing extraordinary things, certainly with Doherty and Denny Fitch, uh, Capoccia, the uh, 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 debt lawyer, is a bit more complicated case, but only because of what happens to him after the episode, yeah. you know? I was thinking he's sort of an interesting contrast to um, the, the Only Truth, Murray Richmond. Yeah, where Murray Richmond, I think, is is sort of a lawyer with integrity defending bad people. Yeah, and then you look at the Andrew Capoccia case, and especially what comes after this documentary, and it's like, you know, somebody who is maybe a bad lawyer <laughs> or, or a lawyer without integrity who's defending good people. You know, so it's so, so it's a strange explain. kind of yin and yang situation I think yeah. with these two lawyers I want to get into him but the first thing I feel like I want to get out of the way and get dealt with uh in some ways is the episode the little gray man that's on okay. Antonio Mendez the CIA agent because this is I think objectively the worst episode in the series it's certainly the most okay puzzlingly boring episode I, right I kind of feel like it's maybe I understand where you're coming from I I actually took a lot away from this episode when I first saw it. And I feel like it's maybe boring by design. I know that's not always a good excuse, but I well, feel like yeah. it's deliberately, I mean, the, the title, Little Gray Man, it's all about this guy who can kind of disappear and not leave an impression. And, you know, that's that's that your subject for the documentary. The, yeah, one of the per yeah. key personality traits a CIA agent should have is to be forgettable that yes. they don't remember you when you check into the hotel, that you're a little gray yeah. man. And he really does have the little gray man personality. He is telling these yeah. stories about rescuing government officials during the fall of our Saigon, where they're making fake movie studios or doing elaborate disguises to have uh, black men appear to be white people, you know, and, and just all of this sort of daring do, you know, dead drops and spy shit and it is intensely boring he is incapable <laughs> of being interesting he's incapable of it that, that was my know? big takeaway like 
I've been saying for a while that if I ever had the chance to try to make a Mission Impossible James Bond type movie, I wouldn't want to cast uh, Ben Affleck. I would want to cast Toby Jones. You know, yeah. that's, that's who the real spies are, who the kind of person who makes a good spy. It's somebody who's, uh, you know, I, I think the phrase he uses, uh, Tony Mendez, is like looking through a piece of clear window glass. Like you're not even there, you know. Yeah. People will look right through you. And, and I, it like, it's interesting to see him make allusions to, like, well, I, you know, I was going to create the real Mission Impossible, and it was going to be more Mission Impossible than Mission Impossible was. But, yeah, like you said, he's completely, the way he says it, and the, the way he presents it, is completely unremarkable. And that's what I think makes him good at what he does. I think he passed away kind of recently, but. Uh, but he is the guy yeah. who's the real life. Argo is based on his true story. The Beneflect character in Argo is based on him, which has to be one of the more hilarious Hollywood castings possible to have this short, bald, bespectacled, really, even Toby Jones is too much personality for him. You, know? <laughs> it's, it's, you couldn't even have Paul Giamatti play him. It's too much personality. Yeah. You know, basically any movie star is going to have too much charisma, but having like this this strapping, you know, uh, boyishly enthusiastic Ben Affleck play him uh, is is particularly ludicrous Hollywood casting. You know, it's it's somehow in the neighborhood of whitewashing. I guess Antonio Mendez, he's probably Hispanic. I guess it is probably whitewashing on some level, but it's like spiritual whitewashing of him in a very fundamental way. He just has an inability to tell a story and make it interesting. That's what I find most shocking about him is, is whatever the ingredient is that makes a story interesting, every story he tells, I'm like, I don't get it. What was the point? Like that is my reaction to it. And then you have to go back and piece it together later. Um, like when he talks about, he tells this very bizarre story about dressing up as a woman for his high school dance to go to the high school dance and go and fool his friends. And you're like, what, what was this? What did you do? Why? Like, what was this? Like, explain it to me yeah. again, what the plan was and what the idea was. And he has this big grin on his face. It's just like the kind of guy who you get stuck in a conversation with at a party. And you're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not following you, you know? And it's an interesting contrast, that story, to Rick Rosner in One in a Million yep. Trillion, who's constantly going back and doing high school over again. He essentially infiltrates high school repeatedly as somebody as somebody else, you know, as, as Gilligan, Rick Rosner, uh, and the dressing up as a woman for a high school dance, this idea of infiltrating a high school in some way it seems like equally crazy behavior. When Rick Rosner tells you about it, you're like, that's deranged, you're deranged. When Antonio Mendez tells you about it, you're like, huh, well, I guess, you know, sure. <laughs> you know, like you just don't even, it yep. doesn't give you any psychological insight into him is what I would say about the, this. That's guy. this whole thing is not being followed, you know, whether I, I think it's verbally or I really like when he's describing the, um, the step pattern across a grid of streets how you lose a tail yeah it's like that, that's that's this guy's thing is like you can't follow me you can't get a read on me you can't find me remarkable like it's built into his personality in this way that i think is really interesting um 
for sure. Even the, the way he like brushes off stuff, like the, the danger of the situation that he was in, like when the Morris brings up uh, Pinkovsky, who was the spy who was caught in the Soviet Union. And I guess, I think they said he was fed into a furnace while he was alive feet first. Yeah. And like Mendez's response is like, ah, that was like a decade ago. And like, he, he, you know, technically he was in like extreme danger, but when he's talking about like, yeah, I guess I was made and they found out who I was and what my specialty was and I had to get out of there. He's, he downplays it so much. It's like shocking actually. It's very weird. It's when we yeah. talk about self-deception in Errol Morris movies, right? Yeah. And this is a theme that comes up over and over again is self-deception. How much are people lying to themselves? How much are people unable to see themselves clearly? This this guy comes across as a man incapable of self-deception because it feels like there's deception. no because there's no self there yeah you, you sort of feel like you cut him open and it's going to be full of like cobwebs you yes know? it's when just... he talks about writing a signature and he said it's like illegible because he was so used to being different people and saying like having to remember what his own real name was sometimes you know it's uh yeah it's a weird kind of lack of self i think when you're the kind of person who would maybe make a good spy where you have to pretend to be somebody else and even like some of the phrasing he uses is so strange where he talks about like remembering what your values were oh are remembering what your values are and he has to like correct himself that yeah. like you don't actually lose your your values when you're in these situations because probably on some level he does you know if you're a spy and you're immersed no in another value place. system yep. you you get no sense of like why are you doing this why did you do any of this it's all the high school dance story of why are you fighting the russians what are you trying to accomplish why are you rescuing these people from a consulate here and these politicians here and there's no aspect of politics to it there's sort of no aspect of self to it in any way it's it's like a completely value system free set of behaviors in that way he's like the opposite of ted kaczynski who we talked about in the in the kingdom of the unabomber who ted kaczynski's problem is his personality is completely overdetermined he completely has an inability to do anything except according to this punishingly rigid logic right he's somebody who's capable of doing whatever for any reason it's like why did you do this in high school and it's kind of like it was a thing to do is the only intelligible answer you get from it why are you feeding people into a furnace feet first and it's like because that's just what happens when you're a spy you know and it might have happened to me too you know he doesn't seem to have any reaction to it it's this is like the natural order of things and I was thinking a little bit about the Um Bonimer episode as well. We mentioned it just briefly, but Ted Kaczynski had been a, a product of the MK Ultra experiments while at Harvard. They had, it's kind of well documented now that he got his psyche shattered by these, these notorious MK Ultra experiments, which were essentially experiments to see if the government could break people down psychologically and build them up to perfectly follow orders from the government in one way or another part of the idea is to subliminally follow orders from the government right that yeah, you like want to create spies. candidates and, yeah that yeah. aren't aware they're spies in some way is the idea and it's funny that's what this guy is in a way is like they're trying to build him out of ted kaczynski like somebody yes. who naturally has 
nothing inside of them, who has an underdetermined personality, is what you want. It's, it's sort of, could they, when he's talking about being tortured, what would you give them? And he's like, I'd resist, resist giving them anything. And you sort of feel like, because there's actually nothing to give about you. I guess you could give up information, but there's like no person to be given away in some way. Whereas like, if you put Ted Kaczynski under torture, he would give you so much. He's a manifesto machine. This guy's yeah. incapable of writing a manifesto. And I think that that's, those are two different personality types that are sort of elucidated is the people that would, would you know, that's, it's also, I was going to say people who want a book written about them and people who don't want a book written about them. But here's the thing about Mendez is he certainly has more than enough vanity and self-regard. I think he's he has somebody... written several books about himself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's been in different places. It's, I mean, I forget if Argo was like explicitly based on something that he wrote, but I, I think he's... it might've been. Yeah. And his manner is like with all of this, like he's telling you a great story. That's oh, and when he's talking about, um, especially like the creating of illusions and it's like, you know, what I'm doing, it's just like the movies and you just need an interesting script, I think is what he says. But then when he's talking about the script that they use to uh, fake this location scouting for a film in Iran to get these hostages out, he didn't read the script, so it's like you don't you don't even know if you have an interesting script or not. But you know, it, it's funny that he underscored that in his metaphor that like uh, you just need an interesting script to do your spy work. Did you read the script? No. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah. Do you think? What do you think about him as a subject for Errol Morris, like in relationship as a guy to other Errol Morris subjects? I mean, again, it's. He doesn't make an interesting subject, but he's interesting kind of when you put him in context of other subjects. And it's interesting to me that he is so uninteresting. <laughs> like, I feel like, again, that's sort of the, the point of that episode. He is the little gray man. He's he's somebody who, um, like, by his nature, is not somebody who's going to leave an impression on you. And yeah, there are interesting. Oh, there sorry. are, like, little Morris reflection moments, too, I was thinking about. Like, when um, Mendez is talking about yeah, you can talk over the phone, but sometimes you physically need to be there and you need to look your source in the eye to be able yeah. to tell like if it's the truth or not, or if it's important or not. Like, you know, that's so similar to what Morris is doing where, like, yeah, you could probably get a lot of this information by other means, but to stick somebody in front of an interatron and look them in the eye and try to get a read on them, it's, it's a different experience. Yeah, it's literally a different experience. That's the whole idea of the Interatron is that yep. there's something so intimate about eye contact. That's something that I, you know, I've heard Demi talk about in my dealings with him is the famous Demi looking into the camera shot of just like when you really want to impact the audience is just like direct eye to eye contact really knocks them out, you know? Um, it is, you know, I was dreading watching this again. I went through and watched all of the the episodes again for the series, uh, even though I'm very familiar with them. And I was like dreading watching this one again. And I watched it and it's really not that bad. You know, like the if it's the worst episode in the series, it's like a B, B minus kind of episode, you know? And that's really, I think, a testament to how good the series is. And sort of the more I think I watch it, I have the impression of this is going to be bad and I watch it and I'm like, oh, it's not that bad at all. And the interesting stuff, the more I hear the stories, the more I understand 
what he's trying to tell me. So sort of the more I get it, like I can follow his terrible stories now and I'm like, oh, that's actually an interesting story. He just has no concept of how to how to tell it. He has no concept of uh, how no, to you be need Ben Affleck to make a movie about it to, to be able to yeah. tell it. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. But um, it's interesting kind of looking at somebody like uh, Joan Dougherty, who's also kind of an unremarkable person in a lot of ways. But I think, again, she sort of fits into this hero category because I think for her, it's about taking responsibility for something that other people don't want to take responsibility for. Yeah. She was the but hairdresser turned uh, dead body cleaner, crime scene cleaner. Wait, but before we get off of Antonio Mendez, I have another question sure. for you about it. He's a CIA agent. Errol Morris is very clearly belongs to the leftist, anti-government, anti-CIA sensibility. Wormwood is about sort of governmental CIA malfeasance. His his Netflix series that we haven't mentioned much, even though it's up there for the best thing he ever did. Fog of War is about McNamara and sort of covert government behavior. Obviously, Unknown Known is about Rumsfeld and all of the co covert evils that that the Bush era government was engaged in. Um, do you think he likes Antonio Mendez? The, it occurred to me this time watching it is like maybe he's trying to expose this guy as an immoral character the way he is other immoral characters. What do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he if he does have that position, but I've it doesn't really feel like that's his objective with this documentary. Um, I didn't get that impression. I, I, I mean, I feel like if you talk to Morris, he would have opinions about the CIA, of course, but I think what he's putting on display here, it's, it's more about the personality than I think about, about the, the morality of the CIA. Like that doesn't really seem to be something that he questions that much in the documentary. I think he's uh, a little bit of a Fred Leuchter type of being a morally empty person who can be filled up with whatever. Yeah. You know, I do. I did get that sense before because the stories are all heroic. He's essentially letting somebody sit down and tell a bunch of heroic dashing stories. And so the impression I always got is this is a heroic dashing guy. But I wonder if Morris is do <laughs> do you think it's more likely that he views him like Fred Leuchter, the Mr. Death, or Denny Fitch, the the airline pilot? What do you think? What do you think of that? It, are, are those the only two options, or is it a spectrum? I think they're the poles, and you have <laughs> to locate him somewhere along the poles of morally empty, inherently moral. You know, I, I think if you look along those poles, like he's closer to the morally empty side. You know, I mean. Maybe Zone six? Empty person no, can kidding. do Sorry, can do good things, but like again, talking about the CIA, have you ever read uh, Legacy of Ashes? No. It's it's like this long history of like every single thing that the CIA screwed up. Oh, I've, like, have you ever read Whiteout? It's I have all about not, the, uh, but it's it's, it's like endless, right. endless series. You know, like I don't know if Tony Mendez has had failures or or what, but it just seems like. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you would look at him very differently if he had like the same kind of moral position and these things didn't work out. If he got people killed, if the, if the putting somebody in a rubber mask to make them look white didn't work, you know, like I, I think, um, 
our outlook on him as as maybe being heroic, uh, even without a moral framework. Partly, it's only because like this stuff actually kind of worked. You know, if if his that plan to like smuggle so people out of Iran by by creating a fake movie production, it's like if that failed, you would be like, oh, that was a stupid fucking thing. The CIA you're, you're came basically, up with. But um, but you're ba not to interrupt, but you're basically uh, uh, quoting something that's at the crux of the unknown known, right? I actually have this quote. It's Errol Morris talking about the unknown known and Donald Rumsfeld. And he says, well, that's one of uh, the great mysteries of self-deception. When Donald Rumsfeld says to me, there you were in the Oval Office of the White House. There's Gerald Ford, there's you, there's Henry Kissinger, et cetera. And we are pulling out of Vietnam. People are climbing onto helicopters. And I ask, do you feel we learned anything from the experience of Vietnam? And Donald, I guess the other not Donald, not Donald Rumsfeld. Some things work out and some things don't. And that didn't. <laughs> yes, that's what you're saying. But Errol Morse has, it's interesting because to him, that is like the the primary definition of like uh, Rumsfeld's being self-deceiving, whereas I completely disagree with his analysis of, of Donald Rumsfeld. I think Donald Rumsfeld is hyper aware of every rhetorical trap Morris is trying to set for him and that it's actually Rumsfeld's moral perspective of like, sometimes shit doesn't work out. That's just what it is. Whatever your plan is, sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it doesn't. And in fact, the history of post-war America is all of these little coups and interventions working heavily in our favor. If you look at CIA, black ops, even minor war interventions like this, they all work out for us. They all, there's very few of them that go as badly as Vietnam, you know, or years later as, as uh, Iraq, right? Or even Afghanistan, like certainly the post-war history of America. I kind of want you to just keep going with the list. <laughs> well, but it's, I feel like it's, I feel like it's up to the George W. Bush era. All of that yeah. stuff works out that like whatever we do in El Salvador or Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Colombia, it works out just fine for the U.S. or it goes according to their plan. Um, and I'm not sure that Iraq didn't go according to Rumsfeld and Cheney's plans, which were to make their companies rich. You know, which they absolutely, absolutely did. You know, both of them had heavy defense and oil holdings uh, and and were interested in the, the natural gas pipeline that needed to run through Afghanistan. They all got personally insanely wealthy. Um, I think that if you look at the interventions in the in the 50s, there's much more of an idea, an ideological idea than a pure capitalist idea. Um, yes. And, that, and that sometimes I think when you look at the fallout to like, these things might be considered successful by the objectives of the American government, by the CIA. Uh, they might have had long-term repercussions that these agencies weren't necessarily counting on, you know, or For that sure. there were. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think this is, you know, sort of an intensely complicated thing, but, um, you know, you look at something like how the hostage situation in Iran went and you know that was successful and you know that's an example of something going well but it's also like and that's what antonio mendez is involved in right yeah that's not yes. that's not just a random historical incident no, no. pulling up yeah yeah no i'm i'm trying to bring it back to mendez but it's yeah. it's also thinking like um about 
the long-term repercussions of how Iran would view the CIA and the American government and the kind of position that it would play in that. And, you know, you get into how these things fit into a bigger picture and it sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't, you know what I mean? Well, I also it's, think as an agency, the CIA is a particularly uh, morally black agency that there's no way to interpret their behaviors along a moral sphere at a, at a certain point. Certainly, if you read like Whiteout, which is basically a history of the things the CIA denied doing that they later were proven to do, like, you know, drug running in both uh, both the, the the Golden Triangle and in South America, you know, uh, arming rebel groups, arming death squads in Central America, arming death squads in, in Afghanistan, you know, arming the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Death squads in Indonesia, I know. It's, exactly, it's, that all it's, these things, let alone like the torture programs, the MK Ultra yeah. type programs, the prisoner torture programs where they're like putting electrodes into, into prisoners of war's brains and trying to get them to stab each other with knives. All of these crazy, crazy things they're doing up through Wormwood is all about this. It's about one of the most famous uh, cases of CIA malfeasance there is, which is that there's a, a scientist, a biologist working for the government. He goes away on a weekend retreat. This is the official story at the time I'll take you through. Uh, he freaks out. He has top secret clearance. He's working for the CIA in capacity. He's taken to a hotel from this government retreat where he jumps out a window while he's under uh, care of two CIA agents. So the story, it's just like pulling back layers of what the CIA is lying about where to the point where they can't even remember what they've lied about. It comes out that all of these guys were unwittingly dosed with LSD at the weekend retreat because this is at an era where the CIA was randomly... Uh, dosing people without their knowledge just to see the effects and, and specifically dosing people within the CIA on it. So then he has a CIA, he has an LSD freak out when he jumps out the window. But then when there's looks at his body done, there's an argument that he's actually been knocked out with severe skull cracking bunt floors trauma before he's even thrown out the window and there's an argument he's being thrown out and then the argument is that he jumped out the window because he was going to expose the government about the S lsd pro uh, uh experiments that they were doing and that's why he was killed and that's like for decades that's like the thing that everybody's trying to unearth is to prove that they had actually dosed people with lsd and they were doing this right that's the fight that everybody's trying to prove it really happened right and then by the time wormwood comes around what harold morris realizes is that's actually a front what this guy is actually upset about is the American government was likely doing biological warfare in Korea during the Korean War and using biological weapons and that he was very upset about the U.S. government's biological weapons programs and so they had to kill him and sort of the dosing was sort of done to see what does this guy say under pressure and it turns out he completely cracks under pressure so therefore we have to kill him you know and but the government hasn't yet admitted that they were using biological weapons in Korea this is still a controversial thing but just trying to dig so far down to get something towards the truth out of the CIA is is such a um it's just such a repugnant organization. It's just such a, a history of just morally black behaviors, just the darkest parts of humanity. When you say there is bad- the Darkest parts of humanity being very well-funded and sort of having the resources to just do 
they they are <laughs> the things the CIA has done yep. are literally comparable to Mengele and the Japanese uh, prisoner experiments. There's just there's just no way to deny a, that that it's that it's immoral behavior yep. of the highest order, and that anybody who hears about it, the immediate response is to deny any of it because you don't want to believe your government is capable of doing any of this shit, you know? You just really don't want to believe it whatsoever, you know? Um, and so that's, when I look at Little Gray Man, it's like, isn't that part of the CIA getting away with this is that they all pretend to be Little Gray Men, that they all pretend to be windows that you can see through like Antonio Mendez. And the CIA signs off on him to tell all these cutesy stories about the heroic things he did, because that's what they want to be the forward facing public relations part of it. And to have him be a forgettable guy. There's something that that the more I talk about it and think about it with you, he seems really insidious to me. It all seems really hideous and insidious to me, especially when I think of the the main character in Wormwood, who's the son of the of this biologist who's killed, who's also very, very brilliant guy who essentially just ruins his own life psychologically. You know, his line, it's all it's all Wormwood. It's all better. Like, don't even bother trying to prove what happened you know, is essentially what the conclusion he comes to is like, you you just can't win this fight. It's just all bitterness, you know, is that Antonio Mendez is like his antagonist. That's who he's fighting that whole movie. That's that's just the collection of spooks that he's up against the whole time. But is that is that Antonio Mendez himself or is that part of a system that finds use for people like him? It goes back to the desert island question, doesn't yeah. it? Would you rather be on the desert island with Antonio Mendez or with uh, with Bill Kinsley, the boss of John McElvain? You know, which one would you <laughs> rather be on the desert island? With? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's really you could sub Antonio Mendez in to the desert island question for Eichmann. I really do think that you know it, that might sound. It's always you know going all the way to Nazism is always a lot. Yeah. But I, I do think that the CIA at some point realizes, oh, it's in our best interest for everybody within our organization to appear to be Eichmann. You know, that that's really the best strategy for us is for everybody yeah. to appear to be inoffensive little bureaucrats, you know, who don't, who just are following orders in some way. Well, and often are not necessarily good at accomplishing their goals. <laughs> you know, I, no, it, it's true. I mean, it is. I, I wrote this, not to keep going back to Nazism, but I wrote this thing for the Pink Smoke site where I talked about um, the assassination of Heydrich and the film's kind of based around that. Yeah. But like That's one thing that case, always, always jumped out at me is how ordinary those Czechoslovak paratroopers were. They were very ordinary guys. They were not ideologues. They were, they spent their last days trying to pick up girls and you know, when they were doing military training, we're getting reprimanded for making jokes and not taking it seriously. And they, everything went wrong. You know, it's it's like a plane falling out of the <laughs> sky. You know, you you step out in front of the guy you're supposed to assassinate, the number three Nazi, and you pull the trigger and nothing happens. Like every, you know, like, it, I, I think I, I described it as being like on the wrong end of a miracle, you know? Yeah. Like, oh shit, I pulled the trigger, a miracle happened, no. Um, and they still somehow managed to succeed. And like, I have this completely unprovable theory that if you had sent in people who were ideologues, if you had sent in like real 
spies uh, or like a Tony Mendes type, I, I think it would have failed. I think for some reason, like putting people who were ordinary, who were friends, who were like regular people in a situation where they're up against this um, very extreme ideology, Nazism, and you know, not just the war, but the Holocaust kind of creeps into that story. If you, if you read about it, it's like somehow it, it, I think it took ordinariness. It, it took some kind of basic human kind of behavior to bring down that uh, system. And there were like massive, massive repercussions, like, you know, to the point where I feel conflicted, you know, if you want to call those people heroes, because like the the fallout was so severe with the retaliation after Hydra got killed, you know, they were, yeah. Hitler was like wiping villages off the map, you know, literally they were murdering everyone and bulldozing it. And it's like, you know, how can, how can anyone be in the moral position to say like, okay, I'm going to kill this guy for some kind of symbolic victory, knowing that the, the repercussions are going to be that bad, but you know, but that's then a you theme the old... in Errol Morris's films yeah. is how impossible it is to control the flow of history. How people well, who specifically yeah. think they're going to set out and control the flow yeah. of history, hey, sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, like, well, the alternative, you think about like what it might have meant if those people didn't do anything. Um, you know, Heydrich might have even, he might have survived to the war. He was the highest ranking Nazi killed during the war. And this was sort of, he was in a position where he was not on the front or anything like that. He might've been slippery enough to survive the Hague. There's that film conspiracy where they show the Vanese conference and like how many of those people kind of got off basically with a slap on the wrist, people who, you know, orchestrated genocide. And it's like, you know, if, if he had survived, if somebody could commit the crimes he did and go on that it's like, well, that's just the flow of history, you know, but you yeah. throw, you throw people into the mix who are completely ordinary, who took, responsibility for something that was much bigger than any any person should have to take responsibility for you know it's like the stuff of politicians and armies and god and all of those things that are above a regular person kind of failed and you still take personal responsibility and i think like that's kind of a theme that does come up in some of these is the idea of taking responsibility for something that's maybe much bigger than a person should have to take responsibility for well, because you, you were, need people you like were, that, you know. You were getting into mentioning Joan Dougherty to compare her yes. to Mendez, but go. But let's go back to that comparison now. Okay. Like um, Joan Dougherty, well, how do you feel about her? Uh, she, I really um, admire her, even though she's the kind of person who's just like a regular suburban Karen type. She, uh, she really is like the hairdresser not, turned. Yada, da, da, you know, yeah, she's not the kind of person who likes me at all. And I like everybody. I know it sounds like I don't, but I actually, or I should say, I equally like and dislike everyone, you know, that there's sort of not a hierarchy of like, I like this kind of person more than that kind of person. I sort of equally like and dislike, but that kind of person dislikes me an immense amount. <laughs> what, what she is. So my reaction <laughs> to her is uh, she would not like me uh, at all. But so, Joan Doherty is, um, her story is that her son is found dead. It's ruled a suicide. She thinks it's a more complicated story than that, but we don't hear anything about it beyond he's found shot to death. There's evidence it's a murder. The police leave 
uh, they take the body, of course, but the place, the apartment is they don't clean it up. And she realizes there's nobody who does this job of crime scene cleanup. So she decides to form a company that does crime scene cleanup to do this so other people don't have to go through what she went through of cleaning up her stepson, this person she's loved, bits of brain matter and bone and blood everywhere, right? Yeah, that, there was that, a film that came out a couple of years ago that's, I don't know if it's directly based on her, but uh, Sunshine Cleaning, uh, that was like a, around a similar premise, opening up a business around cleaning up bodies and crime scenes and things like that. If people know that Amy Adams movie, that's that's basically this. Oh, really? I'm not familiar with that movie. I haven't I haven't even heard I, of it. I think it. from the makers of uh, Little Miss Sunshine, I think. Oh, really? Little Miss Sunshine? <laughs> it's got uh, Ellen Arkin in it and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there, there was a moment when people really thought that was a, a real filmmakers, didn't they? Um, so uh, this movie, uh, this episode, it, it's funny because like with the Denny Fitch episode, I feel like Morris rarely deals with people that he sees in only um, heroic positivist terms. She's an explicitly not a very heroic person. She's a very, very regular person who's just doing something, her sense of self isn't heroic, who's doing something that I find really admirable, which is cleaning up horribleness so other people don't have to face like, my mom died and nobody found her for four days, so the dog ate her face. Like, you know, like people don't have to face the reality of it or, you know, living in filth or the body has liquefied a little bit. So literally the skin is stuck to a chair, you know, that kind of thing that she's going to deal with these very traumatic, horrific scenes. So people don't have to go through what she went through. And I, and I think she's a very no nonsense kind of lady. She's a very admirable lady in that way. You know, yes. um, what's, what's your reaction? Is there any reaction to be had to her, uh, other than that, you know, I, as in converse, this is another one that I think has an argument for the least interesting film in the entire series. Although, Again, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say like worst episode necessarily, but I think least interesting is probably a good way of phrasing it. I wouldn't necessarily like. I don't think I would call this the worst episode, but um, there's no bad episode in the series. No, there's no, no bad there's episodes. no bad episode, but it is. She is uninteresting in that she is completely ordinary but I think that's kind of in a way one of the things that makes her interesting because she's a completely ordinary person who takes responsibility for something that is very horrific that nobody else wants to take responsibility for it's an ugly thing police don't want to take care of it you know and it's it's something that people have to deal with when they're going through like probably you know family members going through that that's one of the worst things you could ever go through and there's nobody there to help you know I, like the phrase that popped into my head while i was watching her talk about her reasons for doing this and starting this business it's like clint eastwood in a fistful of dollars when when he's asked why he's doing something that seems almost out of character for this mercenary figure and he's like well you know something happened to somebody i cared about and there was no one there to help was this is reason yeah. You know, and I feel like there was something a little bit like that with her where she went through that. She lost a loved one and there was no one there to help. There was no one there to do that. So, you know, part of it is is her creating a business out of it. And I think that's one reason why she kind of downplays it as a heroic act. She's, you know, like, oh, I made a company and I saw there was like a niche in the market is kind of like how she's 
characterizing her reason for doing this, but I think like really, you know, she understands the necessity of having somebody there to help you and take care of that stuff when you're in that situation. And it seems to be coming from a place of, of compassion, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because if, if I think what Errol Morris is after is with a lot of his films is looking at the interior landscapes of people that, you know, he had great success with Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida early, early in his career, where he pointed the camera at very regular seeming people and they proceeded to say insane things, right? Like they proceeded to have such incredibly wildly unpredictable interior lives and sort of shockingly bizarre interior lives, right? Uh, some of like the little old lady who's on the, the stoop telling stories in Gates of Heaven, who's just like such a bizarre person or the yes. couple with growing sand and, and Vernon, Florida, sort of the, the guy who's sitting on dead pecker bench and Vernon, Florida, talking about like sort of the ontological implications of reality in a sort of folksy, goofy way. He just early on had such incredible success pointing camera at regular people and opening them up and finding insane landscapes. I, I suspect he thought a similar thing was going to happen with her that, oh, she does this incredibly dark job. She seems so regular. I'm going to open her up and find this very dark, bizarre landscape. A lot of his questions seem to be fishing for that. Like, I, you know, the, when he's talking to her, a couple of his questions do seem like he's looking for, like, you know, what what, what is her reason for doing this? There's got to be something kind of, like, dark and messed up in here. And I think, like, he just found kind of a decent human being. Yes, he says, don't you have nightmares? And she says, yep. no, I have good thoughts because I know I do a good thing. And you go, she's exactly right. Oh, I love this woman. Like there's lines like that, that she says, where you're yeah. just like, oh, I love her. You know, the way at a party when you meet somebody's like goofy aunt, the opposite of Antonio Mendes, where you're like, oh, I love her. Like you're not going to become friends with her or something like that necessarily, but just like, oh, she's great. Like good person. I like her, you know, like she'll bring a great casserole and we'll have a good picnic at this backyard barbecue. Invite Joan. She's always lovely. You know, she has that quality to her in some way. But some of those lines, like I have good thoughts because I know I do a good thing. It seems really sincere. And she doesn't seem to have any measure of the traditional Morris self-deception either. She seems to have a very clear, coherent understanding of herself and the job she does and the role she fills and why she does it. It's sort of like when he asked Michael Stone, Mr. Personality, why are you interested in this? And the film gets stopped in his tracks. It's like 45 seconds of him yeah. hemming and hauling giving this ridiculous answer about the bullies when he was a kid and then just sort of falling That's off. That's the kind of answer I would <laughs> Yeah. Why do you do what but, you do? Uh, she has yeah. a very clear, coherent answer. She's one of the she's one of the least overdetermined people he's ever encountered, least self-deceptive, most morally coherent. You know, it's just like, it's incredible. That's sort of why she ends up, I think, falling into the category of heroism is you're just like, I can't believe Errol Morris found a normal person who yep. does a good thing for the right reasons. This is this is outlandish in the Errol Morris uh, filmography in some way. You know, it's very hard to find anybody who seems heroic in his films. You know, I, that's why I think what's also striking about her, apart from Denny Fitch, when we get to him, in all this filmography, is there anybody that comes across as as heroic, even when they're interesting figures like Stephen Hawking, 
he still draws out their most bizarre qualities, which I think makes them human to him. It makes them human to me that yeah. everybody's imperfections and weirdness and sort of the-, well, the I think that's a good attitude to have towards heroes in general is understanding that like, yeah, they're people and people have eccentricities. And I I, don't, I think um, we'll, we'll probably talk about this more with the Danny Fitch, but I feel like also it's hard to I think if you're doing something really genuinely heroic, it's hard to feel heroic because it usually means taking responsibility for things. It also means, you know, sometimes things don't work out if you're if you're in that kind of position, you know, I mean, as with the CIA, they're sure. heroic is what you're saying. But, you know, it's like, I mean, some of my heroes, like I, I Weiwei is a hero of mine. Yeah. yeah. Not everything's worked out for him, you know, he's made mistakes, but it's also like, you can't let that get in the way of understanding that what he's doing is heroic, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, for sure. And so I think it's, it's even fine to be skeptical of your heroes. I mean, I, I think that's sort of become like a healthy position. Um, you know, they, they say like, never meet your heroes or, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of like, tearing down of heroes, I feel like in, in the kind of cultural conversation, but I think it's good to have flawed heroes in a way, you know, or yeah. not even necessarily flawed heroes, but heroes who are not um, maybe morally righteous people, you know, I, I feel like that sort of puts them in an untrustworthy position. I feel like it's, it's good to have heroes who are ordinary and their righteousness comes from a place of ordinariness. <laughs> uh, I, I feel anyway, yeah. that's like, that's that's my idea of uh, the, the kinds of people that I find heroic. I'm sure other people have very different ideas, you know. There's what she shares in common, what I, what you made me think of is with, with Antonio Mendez, there's no element of martyrdom to her. She does not have any sense of, I am taking on this burden for other people. I am doing this difficult thing on behalf of other people. The way Mendez does not talk about it, like I'm doing this to save the free world or because of moral righteousness. They both talk very plainly and matter factly about the heroic endeavors in which they're engaged. And they have that in common with Denny Fitch too, although yeah. what he's been through is so massive uh, it impacts him more. I don't think yes. he thinks of himself as a martyr. I think he is a literal martyr, you know, who's, who's sort of resurrected by the incredibly heroic thing he's done from, you know, as close to literal resurrection as humans can get, being buried under the trash of a cockpit and almost lungs punctured, unable to breathe. You know, um, he he's he actually is a martyr in some fundamental way, uh, whereas whereas Mendez and, and Doherty are not. And they have no sense of that, which is something yeah. that I think makes her feel approachable and likable, too, is she would never think of it as I'm doing this thing um, as a way of of taking on burdens for the rest of humanity. It's no. a very it's a very unchristlike act in that way. It's more like what you'd want God to be like, you know? Um where do you how do you think it fits into his interest in tabloid stuff? Don't you think that that's more where it ends up being for him? With Joan Doherty? Yeah, with Joan Doherty. The talking about the refrigerators full of cockroaches and the the liquefying corpses. I mean, there is kind of a fascination with these sort of more lurid details, but I mean, she doesn't really seem that interested in going into it. Like, she's not. 
like I'm sure there are some people who would be put in that position of that job whose motivation would be entirely different and it's like a collection of all the messed up things that they see and can kind of gossip about you know i think yeah. like that that person probably exists out there if you if you want to go and find them yeah they're but really I, I don't easy think to find that, on the internet like, you can ooh, find like, the ghoul you know, this is this grisly grisly death you know like let me tell you all about it like i think yeah that person is, is out there and i mean morris asking those questions uh i i think like it is almost uh testing or fishing to see see if that person is in Joan Dougherty, like a lot of these hero figures, um, I think with the exception of Dandy Fitch, Morris does throw out questions where it's like, uh, maybe not can I trip him up, maybe not like a gotcha question, but just like, are you really who you say you are? Yeah. You know, I, I think Andrew Kapocia, um, like you do see, see those kinds of questions popping up, especially towards the end of that documentary. And it's interesting to see like, the, you know, Morris doesn't come out and like judge him, but there's a skepticism there that I think was justified by the way things turned out with his case. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'll just it's say good to be I, again. Like I think it's good to be kind of skeptical of your yeah. heroes, but yeah, some people really are as as good as they seem. You know, like yeah. you know, it's it's easy to again. Like I think it's easy to like fall for people who are acting as if they're martyrs or they're morally righteous and i think like the real martyrs and or morally righteous people are are not the ones who act like that because i think you know if you really go through something if you really really do something heroic like you're probably going to come out feeling awful you're going to have doubts that you did the right thing that you couldn't have done something more like i think that's one of the things that's so moving about the danny fitch story is you know but i, I think like if you do something really genuinely heroic you know in a position where you could actually be a real righteous person a real martyr you know you're risking something and there's always going to be some doubts there I think like you know it makes me not trust people who act as if they you know they have some kind of righteous moral position because you know they're probably full of it you know yeah uh, and it's again Fitch, an interesting like, what, contrast what to Murray like, Richmond who yeah. does the opposite who I think is actually a fairly he's not a moral person but he has a role in a moral society which is to provide the best possible defense within our legal yes. system you know so he actually has a moral role in a moral society despite being somebody who's sort of on the surface overtly Fending criminals that he knows unmoral. are criminals yeah. and things like this yeah yeah and he has that moment too where he's like if i hadn't made a joke of billy no brains and gotten him off would he have gone and killed two more people you know how much is that actually my responsibility also it's it's a system where i mean he does reflect on that and it, i think like it's important to see him reflect on that but it's also a system that would allow a joke to get somebody off you know yeah. like i remember my friend uh briar she got summoned for jury duty and you know she basically got out of it by saying like i can't afford to take the time off of work um but she was telling me about what it was like hanging around with the other people who were summoned for jury duty and she said you know this whole idea of being judged by a jury of your peers it's complete nonsense it's like a bunch of bored true crime addicted housewives who were like excited to be summoned for a jury and were like gossiping about like oh i was also on this this jury and like oh well, i wonder what the case yeah. will be and it's like 
those aren't my pe- I don't want those people judging me like what, but that's what, what makes me about? think of the tabloid aspects of the um you're soaking in an episode two where she's not that person whatsoever and I think yes. Morris expected to find that a little bit but also to contextualize that episode it's in the air an era I think maybe younger people don't know at all. I think I've certainly forgotten how hidden this stuff was. Now you will inadvertently on Facebook, on the internet, see footage of real death and carnage, right? And when we were young, you had to be somebody who went out of your way to rent faces of death to see a dead body on film. Now, every documentary, I've seen so many more dead bodies than I ever wanted to see, traffic footage, I mean, any it used number to be a of huge things. taboo even in documentaries i remember like there's the um what is it the the brackage documentary i forget the title but he's showing um uh, bodies yeah uh, active scene with one's own eyes thank you yeah. uh you know cut one open of my and you very see like, favorite movies you know and like it was enormously controversial because people were like you know you can't show that even yeah. in a documentary you know and this idea that there are parts of reality that you can't point a camera at and somehow it becomes a taboo and then somehow you know you get that tabloid aspect of what it is like to look at this versus if it was something that was always yeah. accessible around the, the open Ouija impulse of yes. let's actually take a photograph of a dead body you know um and i think that this film belongs to that era i think he wants to say you are seeing all of these things that are completely hidden from view. How does it affect you? Tell me about some of those hidden things too. You know, the way in the Michael Stone episode, he wants to hear about the worst serial killer stuff. You know, he's sort of pressing Michael Stone to describe it. He wants to hear about the worst crime scenes you've ever seen. And it's not just crime scenes. It should be added. It's also deaths. It's, it's, uh, uh, unexpected death scene up. Yeah. So it's a lot of people who can just die of natural causes yeah, and or had a to... bookcase fall on them or something, yeah. Yeah. you know, any number of things that she's but like, even when up. he's he's asking her about the, the cleaning products she uses, like, I want details, basically, is what he's saying. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not here to do a commercial for cleaning yeah. products. <laughs> like, she just kind of shoots that down. Yeah, like she's not really interested in giving those kinds of details, because I think they're probably not really important to her. But it is for Morris, he's trying to show something hidden that I think it's easy to forget at this point in era is no longer hidden. This stuff is in your face yeah, accidentally. Yeah. You will just scroll around. I remember one of my my son's mothers, her brother actually, just one day posted photos of that he had taken of a dead guy shot up in a parking lot down in Columbia and just put it on Facebook. So I immediately saw a dead guy that he had taken photos of. I had no interest in seeing this whatsoever. That stuff happens all the time on the internet era. Whereas yeah. before, like this stuff wasn't talked about. It was more hidden from the eye and you had to sort of seek out lurid sources. That was the role that tabloids filled was talking about the lurid hidden from hidden from sight stuff, the occult knowledge, right? The things hidden from the eye, ocular yes. and occult, the things we're not allowed to see right and it did and and true crime used to did feel that way like you were being um sort of introduced to occult hidden knowledge you know and it didn't it certainly helped that a lot of those people like richard ramirez had overtly cult overtones to them you know that a lot of these people position themselves in a cultish way and it's it's fascinating how she has none of that in her. She has no tabloid impulse. She has no true crime impulse to her. None of that. She's she's really like a super tasteful person. 
She's somebody you write a New York Times article about, not a New York Post article about. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Yes. But, uh, what you're describing, like, it makes her an interesting contrast to Sandra London, who's has um it's not exactly the same but she also has like a relationship with crime and death and it, it just feels so unhealthy in contrast yeah. you know sandra london's the woman who dates serial killers and married danny rollins the serial That's killer it. uh yeah it was also this yes for sure she's like negative image or she's positive image and the negative image is, is Sandra London in some way. It also reminded me a lot yesterday we talked about what is the line between crime and entertainment between tragedy and entertainment right? No, I didn't and, have a very good answer. <laughs> well Murray Richmond says there's no line whatsoever and she says I personally feel bad when looking at Joan Darty because she's like there's a very clear unambiguous line between these things and you go oh yeah there is you know, kind of, I mean, kind of, again, kind of it's, it's hard to, to put a pin on it because I think it is one of those things where like, yeah, there's a line, but it's not a, I don't think it is a clear line. I think it's a fuzzy wuzzy line, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's anytime you pass into having occult knowledge, right? Knowledge hidden from view, right? Is the, is the root meaning of that word, not like ha specifically having to do with the devil. And you say like, uh, like, um, like scientists, you know, like alchemists would be called occultists and things like that. You know, astronomers were called occultists and things um, that when you pass into occult knowledge, there is a very strange sense of when am I leaving the regular world behind and entering into a new world, you know, and crime yep. is definitely something that's occult knowledge in that sense of when am I leaving my reality behind for another reality? What is the actually the difference in these things because at the same time this is all very regular human stuff she's dealing with when a loved one dies when a tragedy befalls someone that this is not actually secret knowledge this is knowledge we've decided to make secret because it's too painful and too personal and i think there is something human about saying no i want to know more about the human universal experience even the darkest part of it you know I guess it gets tricky when people are, you know, listening to this in the form of a podcast or reading a book because it's about true crime. And for them, you know, they're they're reading it the way I'm reading uh, comic books or, you know, yeah. thinking about Star Wars or something like this. It's a fantasy world that they can kind of escape out of at the end of the day. And, you know, it's it's tough to kind of balance the responsibility of like, hey, this is a real thing. This really happened to people. And also like, yeah, this is actually pretty interesting you know it yeah. is interesting like it's I, I obviously have a conflicted relationship as a supreme true crime aficionado from my teenage years and extremely knowledgeable and steeped in this stuff uh, about the what seems to be more mainstreaming of it in recent years yeah. i have it's a very conflicted relationship i think yeah it just <laughs> feels like there is something that's inherently grotesque about when secret knowledge becomes public knowledge, yes. you know, but I don't know that it's necessarily a but bad I don't know thing. But again, talking about the responsibility CIA. On the, yeah. on the creator, like I think sometimes yeah. the responsibility comes down to how people read these things, listen to these things too. I mean, it's like, healthier it's, it's a, when it's taboo, it feels like to me. And if <laughs> I'm somebody who's a personally transgressive person who likes breaking taboos, that is, um, 
that's that's one thing it feels unhealthy when society does it on the whole for an entire society to decide that certain transgressive things are now mainstream you know consumerized commodified entertainment it does feel something like like not necessarily healthy you know what i mean like i'm interested in like psychic phenomenon but if you read uh um you know, a vice article that's on like, can you believe these psychics are getting scammed? It's like, well, they're scammers. You know what I mean? Like this is actually good to who gives a shit, you know, somewhere along that spectrum. Uh, But at the same time, while being interested in like, does psychic phenomenon exist? There's some element of our brains that are unmoored from physical reality. There's a transcendental aspect to human consciousness, blah, blah, blah. But you don't want all of the culture walking around thinking this way. You know, it's like when you see something like, it's cool to think about like hollow moon stuff and read about that. You don't (laughs) want a lot of people thinking that's cool you want to make oh, sure yeah. it's all responsible people like me who are respectability you know? is like inherently less interesting than things that are transgressive like i was kind of telling you like i just don't love todd haynes films the same since he got respectable you know yeah, what exactly I mean? exactly but um but if if all of society transgresses a border there yes. needs to everybody needs to stop and say what does it mean that we transgress this i think the true crime stuff is a little overstated true crime has always been popular tabloided stuff has always been popular i think this is something that morris is interested in is the history of of the tabloid element of human consciousness of wanting to know the most lurid secret things and i was going to say about the cia as well the cia's entire business is a cult activity of hiding what they do from vision right of hiding what they do of having secret knowledge right that is that is the organizing principle of the cia is the is secret knowledge as an organizing principle secret behaviors right and so i think well in that case there's something incredibly healthy about society shining as much light on on their behaviors as they can why is do i feel like the cia's crimes being exposed as healthy but not you know uh danny rollins crimes being exposed being healthy i mean there are certain things where you can kind of say yeah it's probably better that this is out in the open and everybody knows about it and you know it's it's like a, a net gain for society well like I, I don't know if you necessarily have to put it in moral terms of like, you know, is this better that it's out in the open for society or is it worse? It, it can also just be like, it's less interesting now that everybody knows about it. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, it, it's sort of a joke when you say, oh, like your favorite band blew up and everybody knows about it and it's not quite as interesting anymore, but it's also kind of true, you know? Yeah, but I'm my personality is so antithetical to that. I actually despise that mindset and that shit. You know what I mean? And I think that a lot of people, in fact, in film, this is one of my bugaboos, is that never trust anybody who says Ming Tsai Ling is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. They're only saying that because they know you haven't seen Ming Tsai Ling's films and they can get away with it. There's sort of something uninteresting about when somebody tells you something you've never heard of is one of the best ever because it means they don't have to defend their position. It means that they know they can get away with saying it and sort of also cudgel you in this way of I have secret knowledge you don't have, right? I know about these filmmakers you don't know about. 
So you can't even be involved in the conversation about quality or not quality. Whereas a lot of times these very sort of beloved cult filmmakers or art filmmakers make some bigger jump to public knowledge and public visibility and everybody can see it's overblown about them, that it's been completely overblown and you have regular people weighing in and their reputations drop precipitously uh, a lot of the time. And I'm, I'm always untrustworthy of people who praise the most obscure shit uh, very handily. Yeah. It's I, always I like, suspect. Uh... They're trying to get away. They're trying to get away with not having to defend their position. There is sort of this mindset that, that like the you know, for these people, the way they phrase it, it's like the less somebody's seen a film, the better it must be. So like, therefore, the best film ever made must be a film that like nobody's ever seen. You know, know. it would be like, what's the best film ever made? Um, And as John cried, I don't know, used to have a. uh, make it a point of pride to review things that had no other IMDb reviews for Think Smoke. And I can tell you, those are not the best films ever made. They are, they are definitely not any good most of the time. Although sometimes you do find a real good film that you choose. Like, I mean, I feel like when I'm talking about something like Story of a Three-Day Pass or uh, yeah, The Humbray, I'm, like- I'm not talking from a place of like, this film is great. Only I have seen it. You don't know what you're talking about. It's like, hey, everybody should see this. Yeah, but you know, I think those I, are two different like impulses is yeah. everybody should see this. But there's also, again, with somebody like Meng Tsai Ling, this is the example I always go to is like, Goodbye Dragon Inn is one of the greatest movies ever made. Let me describe this movie that sounds overtly boring that you will never want to watch. You know what I mean? It's like I'm simultaneously going to well, put and a I, I like Goodbye on the Dragon Inn. I mean, like I love these movies. I think he's an interesting filmmaker. Yeah. I don't think he's one of the 200 greatest filmmakers ever made. Sure, that I, yeah, ever existed. Yeah. He's made some interesting movies. That's why I'm saying you've got to watch out for the people who are like. I'm devoting a huge chunk of my career to this guy. You know, those are always the people that are the most full of shit. You know, the the guy, they, these are the like, let me show you my record collection guys who are always like the grossest creeps. They're all fucking losers. That's that's part of what it is too, is like the cool guy. They're all Timothy Spall in Life is Sweet. You know what I mean? <laughs> guys who are like, these, these cool guys who are just like, can't even the mask of coolness covers no part of their face. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a crazy sex pervert. I'm only thinking about this too, because Cribs and I are doing a, a book podcast coming up and I'm talking about the gentrification of exploitation cinema. And it's just oh, like, you know- I mean, that's actually these, a really interesting topic, but- Yeah, just like all of these guys who are like, welcome fellow sleazebag perverts. And they're dudes who would have been pissed their pants to set foot in Times Square in the seventies, you know? <laughs> just like these like- I mean, there's so you know, many of these podcasts and you have fucking these like- Sarah Lawrence attending nerds who, you know, I, never I know. would have- you have these like wieners talking about like they call their one eye and cannibal yeah. holocaust and I, I know exactly the kind of type that you're talking about people who literally would have been afraid to go into these theaters who just never would have would have done that and and what it's meant for the modern day exploitation movies that are all sort of lacking in transgression in some fundamental way we're getting very far afield now yeah, on an already it's... long episode let's talk <laughs> about let's talk about mr debt or yeah. let's talk about leaving the earth because we've talked well, more about it which one I would you wanna, yeah. i would rather talk about uh mr depp because I, I feel like leaving the earth it's just i feel like it's the closest to a feature film i think out of all of these yeah episodes um i guess technically one in a million trillion trillion is yeah. is also like you know an hour-long episode but that that one in a million trillion feels like an extended version of uh 
of one of the half hour episodes that's like double yeah. length but leaving the earth feels like oh you probably could have padded this out and made it a feature like it feels like, like a monument to yeah. something yes. i don't know maybe to humanity maybe to, to yeah. human decency but it, it feels i almost want to save that for for last since it just yeah. feels like it's gonna it could have been its own episode i almost said we yeah. should do it as its own episode but let's so mr debt you have this lawyer uh, who's a very enthusiastic guy, uh, Andrew uh, Capoccia. And what yeah. he does is he goes to people who are in severe credit card debt and he uses laws that are on the book to negotiate with credit card companies. And credit card companies apparently just inveterately engage in illegal behaviors to try and collect and make illegal threats trying to collect. And there's all of these um, systems for remediation of your debt that you're allowed access to that um, that are pretty well hidden and that people don't like you to know about. And yeah. he becomes Talk a about lawyer. about knowledge, like the yeah. legal system that's very occult, yes. And what he does is he um, uses his knowledge. He has, I think he says, does he say 7,500 clients he has at the time? He uh, essentially like goes yeah. and gets people's debt wiped out in credit card debt. And he's a guy who's very passionate about these credit card companies are intentionally putting you in unresolvable debt. They're coming to people at their weakest moment. They're coming to people at their hardest moment. They're taking advantage of people who are having life crisis, who are having health crisis, who are having horrible moments and intentionally putting them in debt that they know they can never get out of, that they won't give you a loan for the amount of money they'll give you a credit card for, right? Because they want you making that minimum payment month after month uh, for the rest of your life. I believe he says that at, at is it 21.9% interest a $7,000 it's like $7,000 debt at maybe 29.1% interest to pay off the bank required minimum will take 143 years and that's their plan is they want you in debt for 143 yes. years they don't care about getting the central money and he also says that it'll be something like $120,000 worth of, of, of cash you've paid off I'm getting all of these numbers wrong because I don't have you in front of them but Martin will attest these I'm in the neighborhood of saying it's, the it's in the ballpark. Things. Yeah. Yeah. And so he goes and he goes in court and he gets the debt wiped out for people. He gets the debt wiped out. Martin, what was your reaction to him before you read anything about post episode life for him? Okay. Well, I think what he's saying about the system of debt is absolutely correct. You know, I think the way that it preys on people, the way that it targets vulnerable people. It's incontrovertibly true. There's yeah. no argument to the contrary. It, it, it's an evil system, you know. Yeah. It's um, predatory, exploitative, vile, immoral. It's all of these things incontrovertibly. When he's talking about like credit card companies sending letters to people being like, you no longer have the right to go to court <laughs> to their cardholders and things like this, to, you know blatantly sort of illegal things that they whatever they can do to try to get away with this and intimidate people and dissuade people from thinking about their, their basic rights over these issues um you know i i think like his criticism of this debt system is absolutely correct 
It's interesting so, because Errol Morris also in the episode alludes to that he had been severely in debt and he would get calls yeah. from the credit. This is one of the episodes where Errol Morris is all over it. He's almost yeah. like a secondary character in it, similar to Amer American Dharma. You he, know, he he's almost quite a bit. Yeah. It's almost a dialogue, but he talks about he would get these calls that were like, Mr. Morris, have you no shame? What would your mother think of this, right? And I heard him I tell was... a story on a podcast where he was saying, uh, I guess when he was like very badly in debt, um, to I, I think it was like to the phone company, uh, Errol Morse's stepfather said, now Errol, don't you think it's about time that you turned yourself in? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, that's that's the kind of position he was in. Well, he talks about, I can't remember if it was after Vernon, Florida, Gates of Heaven, or I think it was after Thin Blue Line. And I heard an interview and the interviewer says to him, so you, what were you, how were you making money? What were you doing? And he just says, I was in trouble, right? And I think that Errol Morris, more than a lot of filmmakers, he comes from a, a um, American aristocratic background in some ways. His mom is, is, a, uh, is a famous uh music teacher and and pianist and things like think, that um, musician and i don't know if it how true it is but they some people say like his brother was one of the people who invented email yes he comes from like an intellectual family yeah. but he still managed to get incredibly in debt making his movies and i think it was even after thin blue line that he was talking about he took brief history of time just to make some money and i was yeah. telling you this did we mention on one of the episodes that steven spielberg hired him to do it with amblin and hated it so much he asked to have his name taken he told off me of which it? is is crazy i forget if he told me during the show or afterwards but yeah, yeah. It's absolutely nuts. I, he said it wasn't even fit for public television, which is just like, wow. And that movie's fantastic. It's a great documentary. It's that movie's definitely I, I better know. Like sometimes than Temple like, of Doom. No, I'm just <laughs> sometimes like when you hear a filmmaker like say these kinds of statements, I'm like, what what are they seeing in in the documentary that like makes them think that this thing is is basically worthless i don't know yeah what did he think he was going to get it's very strange but morris essentially did brief history of time just to get some yeah. money he was doing and commercials he, uh, yeah. i think he, he says hadn't like read the book he, he took, read the um, book uh history of time on the flight to england to meet yeah. stephen hawking like that's how unfamiliar he was with the subject it was not a passion project in any way but i, I think it, he said that the first time he ever made money as a filmmaker it's when he got offered commercials yes he, and he still does commercials uh, many 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 it's like sort of uh you know he's one of those guys who has like a second career as a commercial director Over like spike thousand. lee's got like also piles of yeah. commercials um I mean Morris and it's interesting when I program the theater we uh wanted Morris to come he was scheduled to come with something and got very ill and didn't come when we were doing a series. When we had a chance to bring him back, he was really insistent. He wanted to do a program of his commercials and talk about his TV commercials. He was like, let me pick my most interesting commercials. The The person who was uh, dealing with him and sort of in charge of these decisions, she was like, this sounds like a terrible idea. I don't want to show TV commercials for an hour and, and talk about them. I mean, we've, we've got to get out of doing this in some fundamental way. It was like, this sounds like a great program. And, well, I've got this, this DVD that's like a collection of um, commercials by famous directors. And like, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily know, but it's like, oh, here's a commercial that David Cronin directed. Here's a commercial by Spike Lee. Here's a, like people like that. There's um, some that I can tell it's actually really cool. directed. Yeah. There's some that I can guess. He also, I forget where I, on one of the DVDs of his, it has like a little collection of like five or six commercials he directed Maybe, on one of yeah. the DVDs. I've seen some of them um, 
like in other documentaries, like he shows uh, the Levi's commercial that he yeah. directed where they're showing off their their terrible tattoos. Sometimes I'll hear radio uh, ads and they have a very distinct Morris feel to them and I'll go, oh, he he probably directed that. Um, there, there's He's got well, a feel. There were Miller White commercials about, uh, that I'm sure he did that I have no way of knowing. It's hard to check who directed it. It's hard because there's no like IMDb for commercials really. But yeah. if you're talking about like commercials that he directed and since we're talking about like Andrew Capoccia, one of the things that uh, a lot of people kind of scandalized with Errol Morris sort of recently was him doing the commercial for Elizabeth Holmes, uh, yes. Theranos lady. Yeah, uh, who like a turned little out to be like, completely... yeah. He yeah, did she, a full like little thing on her, like mini. Uh, it was like a mini documentary EPK, almost. Yeah, or, like I mean, it was an ad, kit, but yeah, yeah, type thing. It was like um, I think it was like an ad for fundraising. It wasn't something that went on TV. It was like something that went out within like PR type world, right? Yeah, that he had done for. Her. And um, he said he liked her, and she yeah, yeah. proved to be a fraud. She, My, she was a complete but, fraud. But you didn't answer. Did you like? Capoche or not how did you feel about him because when I watch this episode I cheer at the fucking screen as somebody who John Cribbs and I when we were living together in college we are both guys who are horrible with money we went into incredible debt there was a parking lot near our house where we had gotten in an argument with the guy who owns the parking lot uh, about what, how much money we should pay him to park my car there John had kicked off the fight somehow and when I would see this guy I would literally run away from him you know i would literally run away from this dude who would like chase me down like angrily with a baseball bat and stuff you know and so like when i and i was heavily in debt and got hugely into debt it was very hard to get out of it like i watched this episode and i'm like fucking do, like i'm in the army like let me come work for you like i will like i'm you got me man like let's do it cheering for what he says but i think like there is even before I, I looked up what he had done after, I had that sort of skepticism of like, okay, like, should I trust the guy who's saying all the right things? And I feel like even Morris kind of touches on that when he's he's asking him some of these questions where, you know, he, he's like, how do you make a living? Yeah, You know, he, he wants to know because it sounds too- And what's the answer? Too good to be true. Uh, well, he, he talks about like taking a um, percentage of the, of the judgments and uh, then of the he judgment. has and then he has them pay off what they owe him in okay. legal fees month he, by yeah. month he says he only sounds a lot like, like paying the minimum payment yes. to a credit card company well, doesn't it all right this is the really interesting thing about his um the fraud case that he ended up becoming okay that's the after. twist ending that we haven't yeah. mentioned he was sentenced to 15 years in jail for fraud yeah so he's doing exactly what he said the credit card companies were doing he was targeting vulnerable people you know and uh taking advantage of that um it's my i will say reading about it what he says in the documentary is yeah. that lawyers the irs uh, the judges are furious at him and he alludes yes. to in the episode he says something i can't remember what it is but you get the sense they're going to come after me someday and that's, that's fine yeah he he sort of i don't know if that's just some guy getting ready to build his embezzlement defense but you do get the sense of like they're going to put sights well, on me and come for me that's also something that people talk about with him getting 15 years for something that a lot of people probably would not have gotten any a grand total of 15 years for or any time for is they were mad at him and they really wanted to nail him 
to make you know, an example. And, and again, I, I think it's an interesting contrast charges, to like Murray Richmond, who, you know, he talks about that story yeah. of like the, you know, the United States versus uh, Murray Richmond and yeah. yeah, that whole. The government coming for him. Government com coming for him and, um, you know, coming up with a witness who had never met him before and had this date and like being very slick about saying, well, I knew where I was on that date, but I didn't say until the trial because I knew they would change that date. And his his understanding of how that system is faulty worked in his advantage because he knew how to wait until trial and say, oh no, I was actually in this courthouse in another trial on that day when you supposedly saw me making this uh, but if incriminating. You, if you look at what they got Andrew Capoccia for, it's not clear to me that he actually he's moving money between various shell companies, right? Yes. In a way that apparently they portrayed as he's trying to steal money from people. Well, and instead, it's it's not clear to me that they got him on anything other than technicalities too. That's the other thing is it's not like they caught him with a yacht and a million dollar house and he's headed to Tahiti, he was still running his companies even as he's mounting his legal defense, he's still defending other people against the credit card companies. So it's not clear to me they nailed him on anything other than what can we get him to nail him on? Right, I you mean, know? from what I understand, the fraudulent part was him, he was basically taking his fee upfront based on what he optimistically thought the outcome could be 25% of whatever the settlement's going to be. Oh, okay. Like it doesn't quite end up being that much. Uh, I'm still taking 25% of what, what it could have been or what I thought it might've been. So like, I think that is kind of where the fraud crept into it, but I think you're right that a lot of this does feel like, you know, they, they found, they found some dirt on him and okay, we're going to nail him to the wall. You know, we're going to get this guy back, get, get this guy back. I think like there is an element of that too. I, um, I will say I've been dealing with lawyers a ton this year and just like, it, <laughs> I wish he was my lawyer, even knowing how everything went down, <laughs> I still wish he was my lawyer. You know, I mean, this is again, like I, I wouldn't want to be a lawyer because I think like part of it is you're dealing with people who are like having the worst time in their life, you know, yeah. going through divorce, going through death, going through murder, whatever, you know, it's, it's like the worst situations that you can be surrounded by. And, and then you have to navigate this legal system, which is, which is crazy, you know, and like, yeah. it's possible to do it. You can understand it, but it's, um, it's a very inhumane system in a lot of ways. So. No, you're right. All of the red flags are there with him. And I just, I'm too in love with them. I, I think, but listen, I'm just too in love with his cause. You know, I, I well, could be, made, is, I could be the Bolshevik one. made Stalinist by Andrew Capoccia. <laughs> but this you is what, what I, I say mean? about like, you have to be kind of skeptical of people who position themselves as being righteous. His, yes. his stance is, is correct in that like, yeah, what, what these credit card uh, companies are doing are, are is, immoral is predatory exploitative and, and i'm the righteous times, one who's going to stick yeah. it to them oh everything i'm doing even is says good. i'm the only lawyer doing this a few yeah. times you know uh, or i was the only lawyer doing this yeah. you know that but he to, even you, sets out like i am the christ figure for you guys right here but to me like, that that is a red flag yeah you know, i know that, 
I know. I know. <laughs> like, you know, when you have somebody who who says all the right things and it's, I know Martin, it's, just yeah. when I look in his eyes, you don't understand. You don't understand what's actually inside. What's okay, actually right. inside Here. of Danny Rollins. You let, don't let, understand let me, what's uh, actually in there, Martin. Who would you rather have as your lawyer? Murray Richmond or Andrew Capucci? Murray Richmond. Murray of course. Richmond. Murray Richmond's a stone cold <laughs> killer. Murray Richmond's probably the best lawyer <laughs> in the world. And, well, I feel like Murray Richmond is is genuinely righteous. He doesn't position yeah. himself as that, not not even once. Um, but what he's doing is, you know, again, I think we even mentioned on that episode that like he's somebody that could have, you know, it would have sounded a little bit absurd if we were like, oh yeah, this guy who got a convicted murderer off is in the hero category. But I almost feel like you could have because on some level, I think- uh, what Murray he's doing Richmond is... could get rain off on the charge of being wet. Like right. Murray Richmond right. could, could, you know, get bricks yeah. off on the charge of being red you know like he just he's he's that good but he needs to have that role in um somebody needs to play that role in a just system of the yes. best possible defense against the best possible prosecution like somebody needs to play that role and i think that andrew capoccia is also doing that that the system is so stacked against people and so stacked in favor of debts and the banks and you know these companies he's talking about like mbna are the scummiest people in the yep. world they're just the scummiest people in the world if you look at the, a lot of the like emails and stuff that are released in the wake of um the financial crash in 2008 you know hsbc hsbc was convicted of working with the cartels for money laundering. That is, they were explicitly in business redesigning their banks for the specific types of, of briefcases and lockboxes that the cartel used. They redesigned their banks to easier get the money in and out of the banks, right? With yeah. people who cut people's heads off on video to scare other people. HSBC was in, it was in league for that, right? Um, you have Wells Fargo talking about these exploitative loans they were going out that in emails they called them uh, garbage loans for mud people, right? Like uh, trash loans for mud people, something like that. And just the most hideously awful exploitative things in the world, right? And he's against them. Who else is against them? Who else is coming for them? You know, and it's sort of like, I don't need him to be a real hero I, I, he can be 10 stars. Sure. He can be Liberty Valens. Yeah, he can be the man who shot Liberty Valens. You know what he I mean? He can be the seven out of 10 stars hero, six out of yeah. 10 stars. Yeah. Exactly. No, well, um, I think that, again, there, there, there's a lot of validity in that what he's saying is correct. You know, it's, it's, I mean, you talk about like being bad with, oh, like I was bad with money. I was in credit card debt. Like what he talks about that I think is sort of true is, you know, when he's in the court cases and the the judge is playing the role of the finger wagger, like, oh, you should have been better with your money. Like, I, never mind I being was, good with your I money. Like, no, I, I know you, I, that's I'm, not there's necessarily other what I'm saying, but <laughs> what, what I'm saying basically is that like, you create a system where like, nobody's good with their money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I think we were talking off air, but like we were talking a little bit about the student loans yeah and the uh student loan backed assets that are similar to the mortgage so they can't assets. get rid of student so it's debt. like you can't, you can't erase student loan like and it creates a system where you're incentivized to 
charge more to push people out to give them degrees that don't turn anything because you have a system to that tie to tie labor value to higher education yes right in a very explicit way it's in the credit card and loan company and banks industries interest to have labor value explicitly tied to education so in and from the double shot where it's great now we don't have to pay people who work at mcdonald's a living wage because you got to go to college you don't want to work at mcdonald's you were bad with your money like yeah (laughs) as opposed to mcdonald's is a job with value and dignity any job you work a 40-hour week you should be able to live on uh, that's, you know, my philosophy. No, you only certain things that are tied to college debt, that are tied to college education, have any kind of labor value. And then you get to devalue that labor too when everybody yep. has a college degree, you know, because you've created a culture in which labor has no value anymore. And all of these people who just thought that their, that their master's degree was going to mean something are so shocked. It's like, I played their game. I did what I was told yep. to. It's like, no, you perpetuated an unjust system. And I told you, I fucking told you 25 years ago, it's a debt scam based on the vanity of the middle class and you wouldn't listen. Um, but that's also the way in which, you know, I'm the opposite of Andrew, Andrew Capoccia. Sure. But, you know, uh, it, it gets it gets scary when you have a whole economy that's based around debt instead of producing anything of value. It's it's like everyone's trapped in like- A debt you know, scam I, economy is, is ridiculous and that's what America has. That's what America has. And it's it's like, you're creating a new form of serfdom or something. You know, I mean, there are people who are like talking about uh, like in, in a sort of paranoid way, like, oh, the great reset and this and that. And it's like, you're already, you're already kind of there if you're, if you're working to pay off no, we things were that talking you don't about own. You know, you got a mortgage, like, you got yeah. a, a car that you don't actually own because you're paying loans. Like you're already there basically, you know, you're not working for yourself. You're working to pay off debt and, um, debt that you've intentionally put in put into that's irresolvable you know that you've been encouraged to take on by the responsible people in the world that you should take on a mortgage that you should take on student loan debts that everybody told you you're doing something responsible the standard of life which you realize is illusory it's it's a mirage because it's all based on like okay you you know you're going to live the standard of life and nobody can afford it really but then that's why a saver like capoccia is so attractive again where you're right where it's sort of like the is this a false hero in some way is this a false hero but you need that hero you really do need this hero the culture requires this hero whether he turns out to be a fraud or not but again what space do do con artists and confidence men and grifters enter into but the space where actual heroism is needed that's the most common space for them to need into when people are desperate when people need a hand when people need to be helped that is the that is the con artist space well it's easier to be a con artist like impersonating uh some kind of person with medical knowledge and i can cure cancer than it is to like be a con artist impersonating a plumber you know what i mean yeah exactly exactly (laughs) people are are desperate you know these people are in a desperate situation it's easier to be bernie madoff than it is to be you know uh, a con artist like you say who's impersonating an author you know like it's it's much (laughs) much easier to be a better example than a plumber yes I was trying to think of the most unnecessary labor. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to imply that like plumbers like unnecessary, but it's well, no, like... they have to have actual skill. They have to yeah. actually produce something. Your toilet's either fixed or it's not. Yes, you know. Although there's certainly plenty of of people in those fields. But if it's like, you know, no, I can use I can use my psychic powers to pull the tumor out of you, Andy yeah. Kaufman. Then like you know, because you're you're targeting somebody who's 
vulnerable. The regular doctor is like, get your affairs in order. You're you're done. Yes. You know. Yeah. yeah. Which um, I mean, that might actually. Do lead you well. think Capoche is a con artist? What is your feeling on it? Um. I mean, can you be a con artist and also be a hero? I mean, that's, you that's had, allowed, right? You There's no had, reason you can't be both. <laughs> if you had irresolvable credit card debt that came from an emergency in your life, would you go to him and take him on as your lawyer? Of course. I mean, but that's also the point is is if you're going to get exploited by somebody, it's uh, it's because you're in that desperate situation, right? Yeah. That's a really easy desert island question. I feel bad no, about that. Richmond or Andrew? Oh. <laughs> don't don't feel bad. I'm I, 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 easy, I picked a bad easy, example, but easy desert uh, island question though is Andrew Capoche or Murray Richmond? That's very easy. Well, Murray Andrew Richmond. Capoche... <laughs> he's the, he's so entertaining. Yeah, Andrew Capoche. I don't know. Like, I I just I don't trust him. <laughs> you know, like at the end of the day, it's it's one of those things where like. I would feel if I was deep in credit card debt and I needed somebody to help me get it out, I would feel like I was making a deal with the devil with this guy yeah. who's promising all these great things. And like, it's true, but it's also, it's also too good to be true, you know? <laughs> and he definitely well, real life doesn't lawyer like, personality. He's, he's got very lawyer much, personality. Yeah. When yeah. you picture a slick lawyer, yeah. he's a, we're going to get you out of this debt. He's Mur Murray Richmond is, is, He's um, self-effacing is not the right word, but like he's not varnished in the way that Andrew Capoccia is, even though he's very conscious of the ways that like lawyering is a performance. Yeah. Like, and has like what appear to be like $50,000 suits. I know, I know. But like when he's talking about like, ah, life's a holum, life's a dream and all that, like it's, yeah. It, it, I feel like in that interview, uh, just in contrast, Murray Richmond is is off in a way that Andrew Capoccia is on when he's doing the Mr. Dead interview. Like, I feel like on some level, Andrew Capoccia is treating the Morris documentary as an opportunity to like do an ad for himself, right? Yeah. The way Joan Doherty refuses. That's the way Joan Doherty refuses, yes. Important distinction between them and their personalities, you know, is that again, yeah. she said- I, I think that's where the mistrust comes from for me anyway, but- Well, maybe, okay. Let's let's get to the last one then. Let's let's get okay. to leaving the earth. This is the story of Denny Fitch, who is a um, he trains pilots for emergency situations. Right, he's a flight training instructor who, in a very detailed, complicated, three D flight simulator cockpit, trains uh, pilots for emergency situations that pilots are required to do every year. This training, he gets on a flight to go back home to, to Chicago one day and the DC 10 he's on the number two engine. That's the engine over the tail explodes, sends its um, turbine out, slices all the hydraulic lines and blows up the number one engine, which is the engine on the uh, right wing of it. They power down the back engine. And so they have this plane. DC 10s are completely inoperable without hydraulics. There's no way to control them. And this plane with 292 people on it, uh, he uh, asked the stewardess if the cockpit wants his help. He goes out and um, this episode is telling him telling the story of what happened. Uh, this is, you know, best, worst, all of that. This, this is the episode of the series, right? 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. He goes in great detail and step by step of what happened, what went wrong, what he was experiencing. It's, uh, and of course, he goes beyond that at the end, but it's incredibly harrowing hearing him describe basically this plane falling out of the air. And uh, in, a, in a fugoid shape, so not even falling, sort of yeah. slowly descending and going back up, descending and going back up, yeah. knowing they're going to run out of ground at some point. Trying to find a place to to land it with a very, very next to no likelihood of coming out of it alive. Yeah, and trying to come, come up with clever solutions, like maybe yeah. the landing gear has some hydraulic fluid uh, trapped in it, and if we put the landing gear down, you know... Um, what is there to be my reaction to this film is very uh personal i cry literally every time i've watched this film right and the moment i cry uh just to give spoilers to it i guess is he nearly dies in the crash he's in the hospital recuperating when he first wakes up his wife who's appeared there he asks her you know did i make the runway and she says yes, because he knows they have no chance of survival if he doesn't make the runway. But the second thing he asks is, did they, ma did, did they make it? And he, his wife's reaction of sort of getting teared up and saying, oh, you didn't see, causes him to cry. And he says he cries for three days. He's very, very upset. And then it cuts to newspaper headlines that are essentially 182 of 292 people survive, right? And you realize they did make it. They did so much better than is possible, right? Yes. They did just this incredibly heroic act. He saved so many people. The flight school he works with, like the head honchos, the biggest people, the best test pilot in the world come in and get in the flight simulator and try and reproduce his flight while he's recovering. And the first 28 times they do it, they have zero survivors. And they call him and they say, what did you do, right? And he calls them back and tells them a little what they did of what he did and explains it. And they don't have nearly the amount of survivors, but they have some survivors and they say to him, you know, we had 29 chances to try this. You only had one, but it is such an intense moment where you realize he's saved everybody's life. You know, he saved yeah. 180 lives, whatever it is. And the newspaper headlines all have a different number of both people on the plane and survivors. So I'm not sure exactly what the, the correct number is. I, I think um, he says 112 people died. I'm not yeah. sure if he says how many survived, but... Yeah, so that'd be 180 out of 292 because yeah. they keep saying 292 souls on board, which I think is interesting to him. He keeps not counting himself. He's 293, actually, is what is one of the things I noticed this time is that he keeps not counting himself for it in the official totals, which I think is is an interesting insight into his well, psychology. In a sense, like even with that knowledge of how many people he saved, he, he feels didn't like let he that responsibility go. He feels like he felt he talks about this woman stuck her finger in his chest and said, You killed my daughter. And he yeah. says he agreed with her. You know, he said he felt like he didn't have any right to still be there when this person's daughter was gone, you know? So yeah. it's like, he never let go of that feeling of being responsible for these people's lives until he was doing a talk, I guess he describes meeting this um, woman who hugged him, who had survived, and I guess her husband hadn't. And she said, I'm so glad 
hero. And he said, I'm couldn't sorry I save your husband. And she said, uh, bold, you know, God wanted him. Yeah. You know, he said that was sort of his moment where he felt like he could have permission to, I guess, you know, feel like he, he really was not responsible for these deaths, that he actually saved people. Yeah. He's definitely the kind of, this is a hard movie to talk about where I yeah. feel like I don't have a lot to say about it other than it's an incredible story, incredibly well told by Morris and Fitch and just watch it. It's emotional, just go watch it. I don't know. It's also the big outlier in Morris's filmography where I don't think it has anything to say other than, wow, here's this incredible story. You know, uh, not that I mean, there are, have anything other than- There are Morris that. things that come up in it. Like I yeah. think- you know, talking about what goes on in a person's mind as they're going through these steps. And, yeah, you know, when uh, Danny Fitch is describing, like, well, I'm going to die this afternoon. You know, the only question is how long until it happens. And thinking yeah. about, like, wait, did I, had a fight? did I have a fight with my yeah. wife? Or, oh, are no, we, the last thing she said to me. Are we in love or are we at war? Yeah, yeah. No, she said, I love you. Okay, I'm, I'm fine with dying. Like, you yeah. know, going through those... You know, um, I mean, we talk about like self-deception as a as a big theme for Morris. I don't know if that's necessarily self-deception, but it's like how how does the person in that position begin to process this? How how do you deal with it? How do you accomplish something like this? I feel like he's he's not just interested in the the sort of procedural aspect of like, this went wrong, this went wrong, I accomplished this. He's also interested in the human what's going on inside Danny Fitch's mind, the human aspect. Even some of the details he gives that like stick out in my mind, like when he talks about crashing into the cornfield and, you yeah. know, looking through, you know, he's got blood in his eyes and he looks over and he sees corn going by, he's thinking like, oh, they really do make big corn here basically they do grow the, the corn that tall in iowa they, they do they grow mean, the corn that tall in iowa and then it clicks that oh wait we're upside down because like no corn is of course yeah. as tall as a which the decent in an airplane. is 22 yeah. feet off the ground the cockpit yeah. and he realizes well they don't grow it that tall he's yeah. he's like charming in that way too he's got a midwestern charm he's from ohio originally i think uh maybe no 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 that's up uh, that's dale adams that's from ohio that i'm thinking of but he's got he's got like a very decent midwestern charm he's sort of like the apocryphal archetypal decent good american you know what i mean there's something about him that's like really is the picture of like can do spirit clear-eyedness yeah. you know good heart you know midwestern simplicity he really is let me like, bring that up like i've had conversations with people about like different countries cultural ideas of heroism and how like you know if you look at like world war ii this idea of like american soldiers were not like um ideologue heroes they were like hey we're just doing our job you know yeah. and the kind of heroism of somebody just doing their job um you know it's like not um it, it's based on a different true story but there's that uh, clint eastwood film with uh, tom hanks uh sullivan sully yeah yeah uh, which is is very similar in some ways where it's the kind of that idea of like you know maybe the heroic action is this person basically just doing their job and doing it well yeah but then you also realize that's a funny it's an easy comparison to this and one that you're going to think of and if you know the details of like what 
Sully had to do to get the plane landed versus yeah. Jenny Fitch, it's like he it's nothing. The, the Sully, Sully was doing like kids play compared to what yeah. Jenny Fitch. The, the, that's a case yeah. also where people sort of argued back and forth whether it was necessary for him to, you know, land the plane in the river. I think like what he did, he did or... was a thousand percent heroic and awesome. Yes. I have no compunction about him. Yeah. I speak badly of him in no way. No, no, I'm it's amazing. Like that, that it's was, just uh, like it's, like it you comes know, up in the film too, where they're running yeah. the simulator trying to prove that like, oh no, you could have made it back to the airport, you know, you yeah. could have turned around, but, you know, getting into the human aspect of that also saying, well, like that's with foreknowledge of what's going wrong. You have to assess the situation. You have to make a decision. You know, yeah. you're, you're in a position of responsibility for all these people's lives. You have to make the decision that you think is best. And like one of the most remarkable things and about Danny Finch yeah. is like, he wasn't even supposed to be there that day. Yeah. You know, it was a fluke that he, this person ended up on this flight and he was sort of the right person to save as many lives as possible. Have you ever seen uh, Wings of Hope, the Werner Herzog film, just to tie Herzog yes. and Morris yes. together, where Herzog is supposed to be on the plane that crashes and they just have like too much equipment at the airport to be allowed on that flight or something and they have to skip it and he's not on that flight and that's how he knows about this crash right. that happened essentially is he was supposed to be on it. It's very similar to that where Denny Fitch has a choice between two planes going to Chicago, leaving at virtually the same time. And he just picks one, you know, and it's yeah. completely random and he's on the plane completely randomly. Um, it's I very mean, it's fascinating sort of in that way. Well, like some of the other documentaries we've talked about, it's come up like, Oh, what are the odds of this happening? It's yes. been in a few where people kind of mentioned like one in a oh, the odds of me getting this, this, question that I didn't know is one in a million trillion. Oh, the odds of me having a big head and being so smart, it's like one in a billion, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. This is a real like, oh, one in a million trillion kind of situation. It, it's, it's the redundancies of the DC-10 for all three hydraulic redundancies to fail. There's triple redundancies because it's, it's, yeah. um, it's felt that like, well, I think he says triple redundant is good enough. You yeah. know, this idea that like, if things ten, fail three it's times. It's 10 to the minus, minus ninth power probability of triple failure right and one of the things he talks about too talking about about sully where it's like they don't you don't know exactly what's happening they know that nobody because he trains pilots yeah. has ever before survived the loss of hydraulic power in a dc-10 it's just how they're flown it's just how they work so he knows it's 10 to the minus ninth power that this would happen and survivability has been zero in the recorded history of this, you yes. know, like he knows like, and all the flight traffic control people that he's talking to, you know, one of them says later on, like, I, I didn't know what to say to you guys in the cockpit. Cause I thought I was talking to four dead men, you know, yeah. there, I just didn't know what to say. There was no advice to be given whatsoever. It's just like, you're, that's it. You just got to let it crash and die. And he has that realization yeah. too at one point where he says he's walking down the aisle and it hits him. I'm dead. We're just, we're all dead here. There's no chance of us getting through this, you know? Um, but again, it's, it's again, the no ability, it turns out they're all wrong. It turns out he saved, you know, 180 people. It turns out that all of the probabilities were wrong. All of the probabilities were completely pointless, you know, that in fact, the the one in a million trillion is is bullshit. 
And that's what I sort of think when we talked about the intelligence episode, these guys' obsession, these sort of genius failures, their obsession with math a lot of the time, you know, it's that like the math gets defied constantly by reality. And this we, is we another talked about this, that. like, um, I mean, some of the people we've talked about have been hung up on this kind of overly rational idea way of looking at the world and perfectibility. And like, they don't know how to handle when you run into something that doesn't can you imagine anyone you want with less in the cockpit than rick rosner if rick rosner would say, oh, we're, we're all dead like i might as well just do nothing like i mean one thing that's also remarkable about denny fitch is that that fighting for uh, survival even when it seemed impossible like even even after the plane crashed when he talked about like well i like i figured i should fight to stay awake because i knew if i lost consciousness i would probably be dead you know it's yeah. just that kind of a person who like yeah you know there's no real it seems like there's no real way out of this situation but i'm still going to try to land this plane yeah for sure for sure it's it's a really it's it's a movie that's like i sort of feel like <laughs> a this episode has gone on long enough but b also like it's it's hard to talk about in that way it's a movie you just want to have people go experience and i've seen it a bunch of times and it hits me the same every single time so i'm not even worried about spoilers and in fact you're not worried about spoilers as the audience you know somebody survives because he's there talking to you about sure. it you know you know that there's yep. some level of survival i will say it also reminded me of um the end of it where he's talking about wanting to get back and fly of little Dieter needs to fly where yes. little Dieter's literally got then to sleep in a cockpit. Your whole life is, is around flying. Like that's your dream and he needed to get back up in the air. Yeah. Um, and not to have that be his final landing, not go out yeah. like that, as he said. Exactly. And it's like that landing was a miracle. I think that's a fine final landing. Know. You know, it is a real miracle. Like I feel like, you know, I don't believe in, in like, divine miracles but i believe in human miracles you know that was a yeah. human miracle really um but, oh my god when he's talking about his injuries it reminded me a little bit of um tabloid when she's describing like her injuries from the dog oh my god just like oh my god like you know when he's talking about like oh the nerves in my hand were severed so like i thought i couldn't use my arm anymore and going it reminded these... me of joan doherty talking about dead bodies and you're soaking in yeah. in that episode it reminded me of just like when humans become this as Denny Fitch said, chunks of meat missing, you know? I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated with this. I've, I remember, like, I've had uh, surgery on my hand, and, like, mm -hmm. I was watching. I was really interested because, like, my hand was frozen watching the surgery, and the doctor was like, you shouldn't watch this. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, sort of <laughs> leaning over, like, I wanted to see, like, what it, what it looked like and what it was going on, and it was, it didn't bother me because my hand was frozen, but I was kind of fascinated in the, the meat of my own body you know what i mean the, yeah. the meat quality of like oh i'm just like a bunch of matter it that like is attached to a brain i don't know it, it's yeah. sort of fascinating no that's I, remember, what, I mean uh, james fankmeyer's big big yes. theme is the difference between meat and life you know like yeah. what's meat and the soul you know animated meat versus regular meat you know um and i think about that all the time obviously you mentioned act of seeing with one's own eyes that's the entire yes. theme there of that movie is look at these dead bodies you can see there's no soul in them anymore and yeah. brackage is a mystic and that's what he's trying to show you is like there is something gone from this that you can see is gone and it's and it's a tactile tangible thing 
that's now gone. And I think that that's, you know, probably in the category of human miracles as well as I, I'm not, uh, you know, like I said, I'm a Boone Wellian mid medievalist, you know, yep. where I sort of, I don't really believe in miracles. I don't think Boonwell believes in miracles, but I sort of have a miraculous view of the world where Boonwell says that, you know, I'm as interested in a housefly as anything, which I find to be as mysterious as a fairy. That's my reaction is, is just, I mean, I find humanity to be as mysterious as a fairy, like the, the mysticism of everyday life. I am definitely not a, I'm definitely into not mysticism, mystery. I think that that's enough. Sure. You know, it's, I mean, it's not so different when Errol Morris is interviewing Stephen Hawking and you get the sense that like his view of the universe is miraculous. You know, yeah. He's kind of wry in his use of theological language, you know, like God mm -hmm. playing dice with the universe in places we can't see and things like this, you know, sort of riffing on Einstein. But like you get the sense that it really does feel like, isn't it amazing that everything exists, that, that we're all here and that we can see this? Like, you know, you feel that wonderment. Um, you know, like, I, I think, like, the way you described Errol Morse's view of leaving the earth, it was awe. Yeah. You know, th there's, like, a sense of awe in that. And I, I think, like, you know, if you talk about the miraculous quality of, of accomplishing something that couldn't be accomplished, it is something that leaves you in a state of awe, you know. It's Absolutely. moving. So, you know, I think, like, there are, you know, there are miracles in the world. There are mysterious things in the world. And, like... It, you know, kind of going back to some of the other subjects that we've talked about, I think, you know, if you're somebody who has a very hyper-rational, logical view of the world, you know, a very, like, this is my philosophical framework, and I'm going to implant it on this very mysterious, elusive thing that is life and reality and all of that, then, you know, you're probably going to be disappointed. It's probably going to break you in some way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure for sure you can do the math that it's one in a million trillion and just like the math is gonna gonna let you down the reality is going to to come into that that 10 to the minus ninth you know lack of probability it's it really is there's something maybe we haven't talked about it a lot because morris is such a rational philosophical filmmaker more than a lot of filmmakers he has a philosophy behind his work, whereas a lot of filmmakers are intuitive or don't have any philosophy whatsoever, that if you read an interview like with Howard Hawks, you're not going to get any insight into his work. And in fact, will probably be pushed further away from the meaning of it by his, his understanding. Morris is so philosophical that it's easy to put a rationality into it. But in fact, he's a, with Bunuel as interested in irrationality and fantasy space as anybody. And we've of course talked about fantasy well, space. Morris and is, he's a real artist. Yeah. You know, like these documentaries, it's not just like, um, there is a certain kind of documentary where I feel like they strive to take the art out of the, the document yeah, you know, uh, but I, that's not the case with Morris at all. I, I think he's he's a real artist. You can see that in yeah. in his outlook, in what he's exploring, in his curiosity. You know, for sure, for sure. The, well, this is a great. Do we have a lead in to the final to the wastebasket taxon episode? I was going to say one of his Some real curios. Uh, he I does don't know. have a, he does have a scientific worldview at time and science 
comes up in Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, yes. Brief History of Time, uh, that these are the movies that are sort of about weird science in this series, the first-person episodes that are about weird science. And in fact, Leaving the Earth is very scientifically minded. It's about yep. fugoids and problems and, and yes. hydraulic fluid and how the flaps on a plane work and, and all of these, the yaw and all of these different yep. aspects. And even you're soaking in it. There's a there's a scientific quality to it. I think that a lot of these things could have been, and we mentioned, could have been in different categories. If we wanted, had wanted to eliminate one category and only do three episodes, we could have jammed episodes into certain other categories and gotten away with it. Um, but these are these are the the science, the weird science ones we're going into, right? Anything you want to say about it before to to wrap this one up? heroes science anything the nature of matter and its antecedents as explained by stephen hawking I, I think we've said most of it so it's going to be exciting to kind of wrap up this series and i feel like each episode we've done so far i've kind of learned something uh, or thought about <laughs> some of these episodes a little bit these are not like educational kind of style documentaries but i feel like i don't know maybe, maybe i'll learn something about reality or myself or <laughs> i don't know so how be... uh, how uh, debt law works sure. certainly Ooh. learned uh so <laughs> it's going to be exciting to take this to its conclusion yeah didn't learn anything about the cia and what they do learned nothing oh yeah no uh, the meaning and function of the cia the purpose of their missions remains a cult Okay, we'll talk Isn't that unto soon. itself learning something about the CIA? Um, <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> all right, yeah, I'm going to look forward to uh, talking about this final topic with you and uh, seeing what we come up with. 